I'm Jim Juno, and this is Light the Camera Author. Andy Gibb was one of the biggest pop stars of the disco era. His first three singles, I Just Want to Be Your Everything, Love is Thicker Than Water, and Shadow Dancing, reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 during 1977 and 78, and he became a fixture on television specials, appearing alongside legends such as Bob Hope, George Burns, and Dean Martin. In 1981, he became the co-host of the iconic Solid Gold television series, and a year later, he starred in Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat on Broadway. But despite his enormous success, he battled with insecurity, depression, and substance abuse, causing his career to flounder and leaving him bankrupt by 1987. By then, he seemed ready to start a new and launch a comeback, but he died suddenly in 1988, five days after his 30th birthday. Matthew Hild has a new book entitled Arrow Through the Heart, the biography of Andy Gibb, and it's published by Bear Manor Media. And I talked to Matthew Hild about his new book. Matthew Hild, you have a new book out on the life of Andy Gibb. And let me uh, hang on. I'm going to start this again because I don't want to misstate the title. And I'm um, calling it up real quick here on the, on the Bear Manor Media page. I've read it, and I, I have trouble with titles. So um, let me go start again here in three, two, one. Matthew Hild, welcome to Light Camera Author. You have a new book out published by Bear Manor Media. It's called Arrow Through the Heart, the biography of Andy Gibb. And I want to welcome you to Light Camera Author. Thanks for having me on. Now, what, now Andy Gibb. For those of you who were who are of a certain age, this guy was the teen heartthrob of the 19, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And his story is one of excess, success, and basically losing it all, almost losing it all. And he lived a very short life, only 30 years old when he passed away. He was the youngest brother of the three BG brothers, uh, Morris, Robin, and, and Barry Gibb. What got you interested in Andy Gibb? Well, I was always a fan of the Bee Gees and Andy both. And about two years ago, there started to be kind of a revival of interest in the Bee Gees. You might remember there was that HBO Max documentary, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? which really got a lot of attention and generated a lot of buzz. And Andy was featured in that kind of secondarily because, of course, he was never a BG, but obviously he's, you know, a part of the Gibb family, was part of the Gibb family, and his career paralleled the hottest part of their career for a while there in the late 70s, the Silent Fever era. And after that documentary, Barry Gibb came out with an album called Greenfields, which is a duets album of old BG songs that he did mostly with country artists, recorded some of that in Nashville, and that got a lot of buzz. And then I didn't even realize at the time, at the same time I was writing the book, a script writer was writing a film about Andy, and that, that biopic's actually under consideration now to a producer called Lisa Saltzman is working on it. And so basically, there seemed to be all this, you know, buzz around the, the Gibbs, certainly the Bee Gees, and Andy, I always felt certainly ever since his passing, they kind of got short shrift that he was always sort of seen as a footnote to the BG story. But as you noted a couple of minutes ago, during his heyday, he was 
as hot as it was, and he started his career off with three straight number one hits. The only person who's ever done better than that is Mariah Carey, which, you know, if it takes Mariah Carey to break your record, that's, that's doing pretty well, right? So <laughs> I thought that it was time somebody look at his life and his career on its own terms you know, before it's too late, you know, while the people who knew him are still around and you know, be able to talk to. I remember him. He was very, very hot when I was in high school. And, I mean, girls had his poster up on their walls. He was, he was the teen idol of his day. And like you said, three number one hits, uh, Shadow Dancing. Um, and um, I'm trying to remember the other yeah. two. I just um, want to be your everything was the first. And then Love is Sticking in Water. And then Shadow Dancing. So it was three straight in a row in 77, 78, right out of the gate, starting when he was 19 years old. Yeah, and and he and he lived a high life. I mean, that's I mean, right away. I mean, you say in his book, you say in the book that at one point he was making a million dollars a week. Well, that's what he claimed. I think that was actually an exaggeration, but in a way, it's it's thing that he said that though, because you know, he was so young, and you know, I, I think he really did think he had just a bombless well of money. And I mean, he, he was obviously making, I mean, he was making, you know certainly in the millions, but he wasn't as rich as he thought he was. But nevertheless, I mean, he bought, I mean, you know, it's all in the book. He bought yachts, he bought sports cars, he hired private planes. And of course, sadly, eventually a lot of the money went for cocaine as well. But I mean, he, he made millions, he spent millions. It was almost kind of the whole arc of his life. You know, everything kind of came really fast and suddenly went fast and suddenly. And that was as true of his finances as everything else. Yeah, like you said, he got everything almost right away. And now let's uh, I'll, let's face facts here. I mean, his his older brothers, the BGS, uh, even though they did not, even though they did not write the songs um, for him, but he uh, they sang backup, I believe. On yeah, on Barry his... actually Barry certainly had a hand. I mean, general the three brothers didn't, but Barry wrote some for Andy, and Barry and Andy wrote some together. And Barry helped produce the records. And that's how we, Andy always put, I think I mentioned in the book that 1981, Andy appeared on the John Davidson show. Remember that? The old talk show starring yep. John Davidson. That it was that same show that he met Victoria Principal on in early 1981. And John Davidson asked him about his career as hit records. And Andy told John that he felt he owed it chiefly to Barry for helping write and produce his records. So I mean, the, the whole BG's connection was undoubtedly, you know, it, it helped Andy and it hurt Andy. You know, obviously it helped him get known, helped him get started, but certainly to some extent, the public mind and maybe more importantly, even in his own mind, he always felt like he was in the BG shadow. That's true. And that's what I was about to ask you is that he, he never got, he never got away from that feeling. He was very insecure in his own talent. You mentioned that in the book several times. And he always felt that he was in the, like in the shadow of his older brothers. Yeah. The guitarist, George Terry, who worked with Eric Clapton and worked with Andy, played on a couple of Andy's albums. After Andy died, George Terry said to the press that he really thought that that was mostly in Andy's head, that the people who worked with Andy, the musicians who worked with Andy, are respecting him very well. And in fact, I mentioned in the book, Olivia Newton-John, who I got to interview by email, and Olivia told me that she thought that Andy was every bit up there with his brothers in terms of talent and charisma and looks. And, and I mentioned the book also, Barry was always telling Andy this, 
trying to bolster his confidence. But no matter how often Barry, that's how Barry put, no, no matter how often I told Andy this, he never seemed to believe it. Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned earlier, I mean, see, I remember when he and Victoria Principal were, were an item and a lot of people at the time blamed Victoria Principal for, for Andy's uh, downfall uh, through the, through the uh, tabloids and whatever. But you mentioned that he had he had issues before he even met her, didn't he? Yeah, you know, Barry Gibb was interviewed on Entertainment Tonight. In fact, all the BGs were about a year after Andy's death, when the city of Miami Beach named a street after him. And what Barry said then was that Andy's problems began long before Victoria came along, and therefore to blame her wasn't really fair. But then again, a lot of the closer friends of Andy who knew Andy at that time and saw Andy and Victoria together. And even Andy's own mother years later, in an interview, in fact, not just publicly, but one of the people I talked to for the book, who a, a woman whose husband played in Andy's band in the, the post-Victoria years when Andy was performing in Las Vegas a lot. She even, Barbara Gibb, Andy's mother, the Bee Gees mother, told this woman that she blamed Victoria personally for a lot of what happened to Andy, that he had problems before Victoria came along but that they, they got much worse after that split. Yeah. And that's what, and you know, like you, like you say in the book, well, first off, I did not realize, <clears throat> I did not realize that when that his health problems began back in, I believe 1978. Yeah. He was first hospitalized. You know, I talked to the, the man, his name is Scott Payton. He worked at that time for Casey Kasem's American top 40 and was just a month younger than Andy. So he and Andy became fast friends. And so Scott knew Andy throughout Andy's heyday. And he was going to interview Andy. Scott also worked for the Robert W. Morgan Special of the Week, the syndicated radio show, where if we'd have a, like a different rock star band featured. So Scott was actually on his way to interview Andy in Los Angeles. And he got a call from the RSO Records publicist telling him that and Scott was a good friend of Andy, so she could be candid with him. And she, she told Scott, Andy's in the hospital. He did a little too much coke and got a heart murmur. And he, he just turned 20 at that point. Oh my gosh. I mean, now see, and that did he, I mean, he had, he had, let's face it, a very, very serious cocaine problem. Um, you know, he, uh, and you make no bones about it in your book. Um, you don't, you don't, the, the feeling I got was not a sympathetic look, but it was not an, an acidic look at his life. You know, he, you kind of, you kind of walk that fine line between being, you were non-judgmental. I mean, you just stated, this is what happened. Well, that's what I tried to do really, because, you know, for one thing, one of the things I ran to when I began this book, first of all, when I was able to reach Barry Gibbs spokesman, Dick Ashby, who's worked for Barry, the BG since 1967. And actually I didn't even directly speak to Dick Ashby, but another man who worked with Andy, was kind of the intermediary. And Dick Ashby basically said, you can go ahead and write the book and the family won't try to stop you, but we don't really want to talk to you either. <laughs> so I already had the family not, you know, not just paying at all. And then with some of Andy's friends, you know, as I was gradually you know, finding it was kind of like one would lead me to another and so forth. But some of them, unfortunately, a few of them just flat told me that, you know, I've always kept silence about Andy and I'm not going to start talking about him now. But others were more forthcoming, and obviously, otherwise, I couldn't have written a book. But even some of the ones who did talk to me 
you know, they express concern right off the bat. Like, is this going to be a salacious type of book? Because, you know, even during his final years of his life, kind of his last six years after Victoria until his death, and then certainly after his death, you know, a lot of the press coverage Andy got was you know, negative, you know, focusing on his, his cocaine, you know, his, his nervous breakdown, all these things. And so I really, you know, basically promised, promised a lot of friends of his, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to call it like I see it, but I'm, I'm not going to try to assassinate his character or anything either. And so, you know, I, I think that the feedback I have gotten from several of Andy's friends who I sent the book to, people who talked to me, it's been positive. The, the general reaction has been that I told the story fairly. And that's what I was looking to do. I wasn't looking to sugarcoat it or to, like I said, assassinate his character either. I, I wanted to be as truthful as possible. But and you're right that there's certainly some delicate topics you know, that his life entailed. Were you able to reach uh, Victoria Principal? No, and I made some efforts, but I kept running dead ends. And frankly, uh, even if I had, I'm not really sure I would have succeeded. That if she has not talked about Andy in a long time, and basically, she kind of clammed up as soon as he died. And then when DH1 did the behind the music episode in the Andy, 1997, the producers had a heck of a hard time getting her talk. She agreed and backed out and agreed and backed out. And she finally agreed. And so that was 25 years ago. And she's really said nothing about, I mean, she's mentioned a couple of times if somebody asks her bad interview, she'll, you know, she'll say a couple of nice words about him. Or sometimes she'll say that she did a short interview in their team tonight, not long after he died. And he's, she basically said, you know, I, I tried to help him and, you know, I realized it was hopeless. So I left, but I really think she's, you know, probably done talking about Andy. And moreover, I think, you know, a couple of people who I tried to reach that, that basically said to me that everything they had to say about Andy, they've already said. In fact, one of Andy's friends reached out to Marie Osmond for me, and that was basically Marie's reply was that you know, she didn't really want to talk anymore about Andy at this point because she'd already said it all. Yeah, how about his, how about his ex-wife, Kim, uh, Kim Reeder? This has kind of been a... <laughs> If they listen to this, they probably won't be pleased because initially, like I said, I contacted Dick Ashby through an intermediary. Dick's in Miami, is Barry's longtime personal assistant. And he basically told me that, you know, Peter, Andy Starr is one of the reasons that the family's probably not going to talk to me. Not too long after that, she found out about the book and had the head of a BG's fan club, an international BG's fan club, reached out to me online and basically sent me this email saying, the family thinks I need to contact the Andy Gibbs state lawyer in Sydney, Australia. One knew that was coming from PETA, not from, from Barry's camp. And the whole tone of the email was like, you need to get permission, you need to get approval. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the laws are in Australia, but in the United States, we have our First Amendment. Yeah. I need approval to write, <laughs> this, write this book. And just the whole attitude. And then some friends of Andy's started saying things to me like, well, you know, it's don't even try. You're not going to get anywhere trying to deal with her. So basically I never, I never got back to her. And then when the book came out a couple of weeks ago, she, without even reading it, she was on Facebook calling me a parasite, calling, calling some of Andy's friends, parasites were talking to me. You know, some of Andy's old friends started quarreling with her on Facebook and the whole thing got a bit ugly. So welcome to the internet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> you know, the inter- believe me, the internet, you know, it's, it's good and it's bad, right? I mean, on the one hand, I'm not sure I could have written this book. I mean, it would have been a lot harder for sure to write this book without the internet, internet maybe impossible. But on the other hand, you're right. The, you know, the kind of sort of, you know, 
backbiting and sniping that the internet promotes and social media promote, you know, are certainly not one of the better features of uh, of living in modern times. Right. And we want to let people know Peter, the Peter that you're talking about, P-E-T-A, that's his daughter. Right. She was born in 1978. Really, the, you know, her mother, Kim, was Andy's kind of you know, teenage sweetheart in Australia, starting about age 16, 17. And when Andy had to leave for America, in first Bermuda, where Robert Stigwood, the RSO head, had his estate, but then to Miami and then finally L.A., so when, when Andy had to leave Australia in the summer of 76, the age of 18, the same age Kim was, basically she told him she wasn't going to leave Australia or wait for him unless, unless he got married. So they got married and lived, lived in the United States for about nine and a year, right before his career took off. And right when his career took off, when, when his first single, I Just Want to Be Your Everything, really broke in mid-77, she left, went back to Australia and very shortly thereafter, found out she was pregnant. And by that point, the marriage was falling apart, but they officially divorced. She came back to America and a few months after Peter was born, like in the spring of 78, came to New York City, got a divorce lawyer, and Andy or Robert Stigwood paid her a settlement, and that was the end of it. So actually, you know, sadly, Andy didn't really have much of a relationship with his daughter. He saw her, you know, coined to both, Peter and her mother only once when she was two years old. Kim, the mother, brought her to Los Angeles on a trip, and they met Andy in his hotel room there at the Beverly Hilton. And after that, he did talk to her on the phone a number of times over the years, but you know, never saw her again. So, obviously, this is all you know. I'm sure very painful for Mm -hmm. for her and for her mother. You know, it um, it really it really struck me as wild because after he passed away, well. Before, you know, before he passed away, it seemed like Kim Reader did not have any problem going to the tabloids, telling her story, telling her side of the story about how he's making millions and they're living on, I guess he would call it welfare. Yeah, that's about what she said. You know, she, she set off that in like late 1977, fall 77, when she was back in Australia and he was in America and already had this first number one hit in a can, another number one hit climbing. But once they actually got, got divorced, and I've heard different figures as to what the exact sum was, but something in the neighborhood of about $225,000, $250,000, which, you know, today's money is probably more like a million dollars. And part of the deal, part of the divorce decree was that there was a non-disclosure agreement. So she said very little, you know, once that divorce was finalized in spring of 78 and that agreement was signed, she said almost nothing until right after he died, and she and Peter, this is all in the book, but she and Peter went to England where he died, right after he died, to you know, meet the give meet up the rest of the Gibb family. And right away she was talking to the tab boys in England, you know, assumedly for, for, for money. But you know, she she gave quite a few interviews, you know, shortly after his death. And she too spoke in that VH1 behind the music episode in 1997. And you know, since then it's been relatively quiet about Andy. Hopefully, hopefully she may, hopefully she may hear this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, well, I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was aware of all that, that, you know, it, well, I wasn't aware when I started and actually you know, a friend of me, I need to mention before did try to, I mean, he did send her a Facebook message introducing him, himself to PETA and saying, I was going to meet your father's friends. And I met him 
spring of 77. He and I were good friends for five years. And you know, I'd love to talk to you sometime. And you know, by the way, this guy I know is writing, writing this book in Andy. And she just ignored him. So at that point, I thought, well, I'm just going to you know, forge ahead. And like I said, when I got that email, I was kind of you know, put off by that. I thought, you know, here's this kind of, you know, borderline intimidating email telling me I've got contact with Australia. So and I'm I, I don't take any pleasure in the fact that his daughter is upset by the book, but I'd also say she got upset about it without even, even reading it. I mean, so. Yeah. And I'll say right now, if, if she hears this, somehow hears this and wants to come on the show, she's more than welcome to. I'm going to put it that, put it out there for her. But um, this, now, the thing about Andy's behavior, I saw a lot of what I would call cycling in this, where he would he would have issues, substance abuse issues. He would he would is he would start missing shows, um, or he would be sick and he'd start missing shows, and then he would get better, and then he'd get another chance. Um, he would he would get a like a play or, or a TV show, Solid Gold, he hosted with, with Marilyn McCoo. Um, then he would start missing shows again, start not showing up. Did you find that to be repetitive? Yeah, in some ways, that was kind of the story of his, his career from about, not first, when he first came to America in 77, at that point, he was still pretty clean and, and really had a good work ethic. Again, 78, when the drugs became a problem, and frankly, the the depression over you know, what happened with his marriage and you know having this star they couldn't really see or have much of a relationship with. And several of his friends told me that they really thought that was an issue for him too, that he would talk about it and be upset about. It. But even in 78, he was still for the most part liable. He did have to cancel a few shows at the end of that tour because of laryngitis, although you know, kind of the drugs and staying up all night might have played a role in that. But it really wasn't until about 79 when he was recording his third album called After Dark, and it took it just dragged on and on. He was missing recording sessions, and he you know, finally got himself together and finished the album and was doing a lot of TV shows. But then in 1980, he had a canceled tour, or either he or Robert Stig was manager, canceled this planned U.S. tour because, you know, frankly, he was doing too much drugs again. Then he went to California and kind of pulled himself together, did a lot of TV, got Solid Gold, was doing Pirates of Penzance in Los Angeles, actually right before Solid Gold. So he's kind of on a roll again when he got to California. And here's where the Victoria Principal thing came in. You know, she's always said that he was already doing drugs. But if you read the book, I quoted an interview that Andy gave on Toronto, a Toronto radio show in 1985, which maybe he thought was safer to speak in Toronto, half <laughs> the US. But you know, he said in this interview that Victoria was doing drugs along with him. They're, they were doing them together. I mean, obviously, you know, only two people really know the exact truth, and one's not alive anymore. But no question when that relationship ended in March of 82, you know, they started missing things left and right. He missed several TV specials that month. He missed the Bob Hope special. Bob Hope. How do you blow off Bob Hope? Yeah. Oh, this is, you know, more people who I knew. I mean, I already knew the story because it was kind of so well publicized, but some of Andy's friends who I interviewed were still telling that story, just, you know, flabbergasted almost 40 years later saying that, you know, that very thing that when Bob Hope calls you on the phone and Bob Hope personally called Andy, I said, you know, Andy, I've heard what's going on, but we really need you down here. There's you know, three skits written around you. We're expecting you to sing a song. And Andy, by his own later admission, just said to him, you know, I'm sorry, Bob, and hung up on him. And Andy later admitted he was spaced out in cocaine at the time, his, his own words. And you know, he, he profusely apologized to that. Eventually, Bob Hope you know, had him back on other shows after that. But 
you know, that, that, but that was kind of the story of Andy's, Andy's career, especially after, I mean, again, it's, it certainly started, it was certainly already happening before the Victoria Principal split. But after that, it really became hot that, you know, he, he lost solid gold. He got us yet another chance on Broadway and Joseph Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and was getting great reviews. And there was talk from maybe getting a Tony Award, and the, the place was you know, selling out every night. And then, you know, same thing after a few weeks, he just kind of started locking himself in you know, his own mother admitted as he started locking himself in his hotel room doing cocaine. I just couldn't even get him out of the hotel room. I mean, he really did, you know, it, it was sad. In the last few years of his life, he really did sabotage his career. You know, he was trying to get, get back on track at the very, very end of his life and, you know, basically ran out of time. But that's a great irony is that he was actually clean when he when he died. Yeah, he, you know, he went through two rehab programs. The first one that was so well publicized was at the Betty Ford Center in 1985. And you know, at that point, basically, his cardiologist in Beverly Hills told him, if you don't stop taking cocaine, if you don't... Now, I'm not 100% sure he told him to stop drinking, too. By that point, he had a drinking problem as well. But definitely the cocaine, his cardiologist told him, you, you've got pericarditis, which actually he was diagnosed... You know, the autopsy said myocarditis, and they're not exactly the same thing. But in those days, they couldn't diagnose things as precise as they can now. But the point is, his cardiologist warned him in early 1985, if you don't keep this cocaine, you're going to die. And so he went to Bay Ford Center, but you know it didn't really work. And but then a year later, he went to another clinic in Santa Monica, or maybe no, excuse me, Santa Barbara, in Santa Barbara. And and when he came out of that, you know, he, he stayed off cocaine for for good. I think initially he still was, you know, maybe at times drinking a little bit, but he he got that, you know, he got that under control too. It wasn't about the last maybe two weeks or so of his life. When he was, you know, living there in his brother Robin's cottage in England, it was you know, kind of lonely and depressed and kind of worried about his comeback. Then he did start drinking heavily at the end there, but um, the coroner's report said that there was no evidence that drugs or alcohol played any role in his death, at least not causing it. Although, you know, certainly a lot of people who knew him and you know even some of the doctors who who treated him said, well, he'd already done damage to his heart, even though he kicked the cocaine habit, you know, almost two years earlier that. You can't do that much cocaine. Although you wonder, you know, some we all, we all, have, all know of some rock stars, right? Some celebrities who do cocaine seem to live, you know. <laughs> but you know, it's a combination of things that I think that, you know the, the Gibb family maybe had some heart problems and some, you know, really three of the brothers all kind of died too young, right? I mean, Robin was sixty-two, Morris was fifty-three, mm-hmm. was over thirty. But you know, if you can, if you combine maybe some congenital heart problems or congenital health problems with with drug and alcohol abuse, then that's a recipe for disaster, I suppose. Yeah. What What do you think? Why do you think Andy Gibb, his story still resonates today? You know, I, I think that it really is kind of a, a classic Shakespearean tale almost, right? The whole too much too soon. I mean, here's a guy who at 19 years old achieved just about everything we think that especially a 19-year-old would possibly want, right? I mean, this huge, huge stardom, you know, thousands of girls, you know, lusting after him, chasing chasing after him, and number one hit records, and he's on TV with Bob Hope and Living John, George Burns, and Dean Martin, and all these other legends, and, but somehow it just didn't, you know, I mean, obviously, it, it didn't fulfill him. It didn't make him happy. I mean, who knows what the reason was, and I didn't really try to play psychologist in the book because it's not, I'm not a psychologist, but, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, you know, I think a lot of it was, you know, 
his mother said this, and, and some of the people I interviewed said this, that, you know, in his mind, he just always felt that no matter how much he accomplished, he always felt like to some extent he, he owed it to his brothers and he wasn't as good as his brothers. And a lot of people told me his real, his real dream in life, his real goal was to be the fourth BG. And so the fact that that never happened, that was, I think, one of the real, you know, problems or issues of his life. Well, Matthew Hild is the author. The book is Arrow Through the Heart, the biography of Andy Gibb. Matthew, I appreciate you being on Light the Camera Author tonight. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Arrow Through the Heart, the biography of Andy Gibb, is written by Matthew Hild and published by Bear Manor Media. Until next time, I'm Jim Juno, and this has been Light the Camera Author.